You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. He didn't even know what, what a mechanical engineer was. He just heard of it, thought, like, that sounds okay. That sounds like a good thing. So I'm going to lean into that. We all have that friend, Mr. Wood, who's just like, oh, I just happen to be amazing at anything I do, and I'm not like even trying. I, I I wouldn't I wouldn't say I relate in that sense, but I did have find myself like feeling a little bit of uh, kinship with Calder because of the fact that like I am where I am because of my friend's intervention. Like my parents um, encouraged me to accept the academic scholarships that I had earned and and go off to study medicine. I wanted to be a musician and bounced around doing that for a little while until my my friends uh, sort of had an intervention and said, like, you know, every band you've played in is kind of terrible and you're not that great as a musician, <laughs> but you're OK as an artist. You're OK as a visual artist. And so like my my self-appointed life coach, a friend who was a year older than me, dragged me to the Art Institute for their immediate decision day. And she was just like, you need to be an art teacher. And like like my portfolio was literally like just bundled to get like wrapped in twine. It was just a bunch of a stack of paintings and drawings. But I got in. You are the world's okayest art teacher. I feel like I should splice in groundskeeper Willie singing, wouldn't it be adequate? <laughs> but uh, okay is good enough. And sometimes it okay really, is- really is. <laughs> in these unprecedented times, it really is yeah. good. There's a book called Okay For Now. There's a less rough book uh, for the younger set. I think it's called It's Okay To Be Okay. The yeah. illustrations are the okay guy, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. like that guy. Oh, yeah. First graders used to do that book all the time. I feel like who art ed? We're trying to splice Mr. Wood, art and me. Either way, it's ambiguous. It works on so many levels. I know. That's off to a great start. Welcome to Who Arted, where we explore visual arts in an audio medium. I'm your host, Kyle Wood, and joining me today is my favorite librarian, Tony Kressel. Thanks for joining me. Good to be here. Thank you so much, uh, Kyle, Mr. Wood, sir. (laughs) (laughs) Sir. That made me feel old. Today, we are going to be looking at and talking about the work of Alexander Calder. And this week, as in every week, you can find uh, the work we're looking at in the linked in the show notes, um, as well as on my website, whoartedpodcast.com. That's right. Getting more professional for season two. I like that. Today, we're talking about Alexander Calder. And I appreciate that, just like with our first episode, you actually brought this one to me. 
You know, obviously I'd heard of Calder before, but I always love it when a guest talks about work that they are familiar with and appreciate. So you mentioned um, that you wanted to talk about Streetcar, which is on display, at, or not currently on display, but it is housed at the Art Institute of Chicago, our hometown museum. Yeah, I um, remember seeing this at some point in my life, and I've always been fascinated by um, hanging art for whatever reason. And when I talk about hanging art, I mean that mobile, mobile. How, do you say mobile or mobile? Because I never remember the right way to say it. I go back and forth. Um you know, I, it's one of those things that I feel like I, the, either pronunciation seems okay. I, I have a weird thing about pronunciation because I always think like, do we want it to sound more understandable? Like it's a mobile sculpture or it's a mobile, like it, it found, it sounds like you're adding an accent to like get it closer to the French because Marcel Duchamp is the one who coined the term. Um, yeah, I had no idea when I was doing, uh, when I got some of the background information, I'm like, oh, so it actually comes from this work that Calder is kind of presented to us. I like mobile because I think it separates it and, and describes that hanging piece. If you just say it's mobile, it feels like you can take it somewhere. Like, come on, Calder, let's go to the beach and like hang out and like hang your little thing. You're, um, so I, I kind of, I like mobile, but I always feel funny saying it. I'm right there with you. Yeah. And, and to me, it's just like at a certain point to each his or her own. You so know, it's, this is a Calder mobile and we'll just yeah. look at Sick it. Sick de so, Right. You know? um, um, so I am just drawn to things that are kind of unique and kind of step out from what we've, what had been done. Um, I, I think when you look at art in different forms, this is got some abstract pieces to it, but it also has that, that kinetic motion to it, which just fascinates me because the more you read about it, the more you go, oh, this guy was really thinking deeply about it. And I think that's what sometimes we miss when we're working with students and working with art is that if, if you're just a regular Joe, like I am in terms of art, I don't think all about, I'm like, oh, that's a nice painting. Look at the colors. Look how bright that is. Look how dark that is. And then you start to really dig into a piece and you appreciate it more and more because of like what the artist's intent was and how the artist wants you to view it. It's so that interaction, that play with art is just something that honestly I haven't come to till recently in my life. I'd, I'd never thought about how we're supposed to interact with art instead of just like, look at, it. I know what performance yeah. art is and I get all that cause I'm, I have fine arts background, but like seeing that, like, what am I taking away from this art piece? What am I seeing? And how am I seeing it uniquely? And I love that about Calder because he, every time you see streetcar, it's going to look different. It just is yeah. because of the way it moves in its motion. So you have this like ability to kind of never see the same piece of art twice, even though yes, it's the same materials. It's in a different form it's in a different light it's in a different piece of motion it's just fascinating to me that it, it is interesting and you know as you talked about like the research piece and his intention and and all of that i think we've got to start by going back to you know like a little bit of his background and then we'll get deeper into you know the connections and the inferences and everything with um with streetcar so you know he, he was born 1898 um August 22nd, according to his mother, but according to official papers, July 22nd, which I always find like that's the first thing I found really funny is, you know, is this a situation where someone made a mistake in the records office 
or is this a situation where like his mom misstated something once and then just everyone was like, nope, we're not correcting her. Like that, that's, that's your new birthday. Now. Too much paperwork you to know? fix it. Like, <laughs> right. Um, but, but yeah, he was born in Lawton, Pennsylvania. He moved around a bit, um, because unfortunately like 1905, so he was like seven years old. His father had tuberculosis. Um, his parents, uh, had him stay with with family for a year while while they went to Arizona to try to sort of seek treatment. And then he rejoined his family in Arizona, moved to California, then from California, they went to Phil- um, to Philadelphia, then to New York. So it's like he was in motion throughout his life. Ooh, um, I like that parallel. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and I think especially during that gilded age, we had a lot of things changing in the world, you know, we're pre-World War One, but we're at this turn of the century and like suddenly the, the, the fruits of the Industrial Revolution are really starting to come home. We're starting to see all we had factories, but now we're starting to get things like uh, Ford's assembly line is revolutionizing how cars are going to be produced and how all this and Calder is a young man at this point and is starting to see these these things in motion. And as we talk about his career choices, I think we really start to kind of pull that in, we can start to see why he went the way he did. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, one of those early as a young man formative kind of experiences, um, you know, he, I should go back and mention both of his parents were artists, both his father and his grandfather were both sculptures. His mother was a portrait artist. And so he was around arts his whole life. And, um, call, like Alexander Calder, the youngest Alexander Calder, because both of his both his father and grandfather were also named Alexander Calder. But the young Alexander Calder, the one that we're so focused on, um, who became world famous later on, uh, he actually worked with one of his father's friends while he was in high school. They worked together making a mechanical gravity powered sort of train system. And I don't even know he, what that means, but it sounds pretty exciting. Well, you know, it, it's it's essentially like a, um, you know, the way that a roller coaster works. Oh, sure, you know, I do. You, you got that chain that's pulling it up, and okay. it, and it goes over those different things, sort of like locking into place so it doesn't fall backwards. So something you might use in mines or and sort of and, like repetitive transportation modes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Sure. And, and and he was doing it, you know, not large scale. It was more like a, you know, like a toy type system, maybe you know, a like proof a of concept. train system, train system. I, I got the sense that it was more like like a uh, like a, a hobbyist kind of thing, okay. you know. Um, but, you know, he he had from what I understand, it was like an, an elevated thing. So, you know, the momentum from that first drop carries you through the rest of the system. Potential energy transferring into kinetic exactly. energy. Yeah, got it. I'm all. Over yeah. It. Yeah, you know about Science. the sciences. Um, and so he was doing that in high school, working with a, a friend of his father's who was an artist. And his parents said, don't be an artist. Don't be an artist. They wanted him to do something else. And I, I just love how Alexander Calder just like, okay. You know, he just floats through, uh, you know, from thing to thing. And th- a theme I noticed was he was just, people would make a suggestion and he was just open to it. He was like, he was that improv guy, just always yes and. Have you ever wondered who the Mary was from Bloody Mary? If the Loch Ness Monster was real or if Ouija boards actually worked? 
On each episode of the family-friendly Unspookable, we look at the histories and mysteries behind your favorite scary stories, myths, and urban legends to get the real stories behind the scares. Want to solve your next mystery? Find and follow Unspookable now wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, so his his parents said, don't be an artist. So he, he went off and became a mechanical engineer. He studied engineering and um, he did that in 1950. 15. From what I understand, he didn't even like really know what a mechanical engineer was. He just sort of heard the term and thought like, that sounds official. I'm going to adopt that. Um, Must be nice to make those choices. (laughs) You know, it's not a, not a bad way to go. Yeah. Worked out well for him. It did. Sometimes listening to to good advice pays off. Um, So he, he studies mechanical engineering and then around like 1926, somebody uh, just suggested to him, like, why don't you start making mechanical toys? And he created Cirque Calder or Cirque Calder. Um, <laughs> it was miniature wire sculpted forms. Like he also used found objects, string, cloth, cork. And he made these like fun little circus figures. And a friend of his, his suggested he submit them to the Salon des Humorists. Uh, in case you can't tell by my butchered accents here, we're talking about like he was in Paris at the time. And it was accepted, naturally, because Calder was brilliant. And it was displayed and became very popular both sides of, it, of the Atlantic. But Calder became especially popular with sort of the the it crowd of avant-garde artists in Paris. So like he kept developing that craft and he kept getting more and more into the art scene. And Marcel Duchamp, another famous artist of that time, actually coined the term uh, mobile for uh, Calder's work because Calder, it started off, it didn't start off with the hanging floating sculptures. It started off with sculptures that were on a base and he had um, basically a motor to get moving parts. Okay. And so Duchamp, Duchamp like looked at that and he said like, these are mobiles um, and the others, I feel like it was someone else who said stables or stabiles. Stabiles. Stabils. It was differentiating or coming up with uh, a term to separate the moving or kinetic artwork from the stationary and stable. So artwork. were these pieces that he was doing that were mobiles, were they repetitive motions? Were they kind of like, you know, feed the monkey and does the clapping? Or is it like the... Yes. Okay. So those yes. I know were t- tended to be pretty popular during those times. That automaton type of skill, you, you see it in like the invention of Hugo Cabret, where you have these things that can do specific tasks over and over again. Yeah. He was making, he was making um, sculptures that were very sort of repetitive motion. And I think he got frustrated with that repetitive motion. So was he the guy that did the, the bird that keeps go- dipping up and down? That wasn't him, was it? <laughs> Not to my knowledge. What about like the Newtonian uh, silver balls that keep going back and forth? Not his either? No, not his. Okay, just checking. Um, I'm just trying to make sure, trying to get my Calder locked in. I I feel like if I were to make a comparison to something that would be a familiar object, I feel like his early, um, early mobile sculptures that were like, they were on a pedestal and then 
it was usually like an arm or something moving, almost like a metronome kind of back and forth. Okay. And you, you might have some different elements that, that would move in, in different ways, but there was sort of a set path. A defined rhythm to it as yeah. well, probably. Yeah. Was it, and, and you said it was mechanically driven or was it yes. you, the, the human set it off to start it off? No, it was mechanically driven in the early days. Okay. So he had, he had a, a motor to them. Um, and his real innovation, I feel like, where he had that sort of aha moment was when he, when he looked at the sculpture and said, instead of it being on this base and coming up, it could be coming down from, from a higher, like the ceiling and from like down so that it's all suspended in air. And then the air currents can move the sculpture because the air currents are going to be a little bit less predictable, whether it is air currents that are caused by like wind blowing or like people's motion and breath in the room, you know, there's going to be that circulation of air that's going to move these sculptures in ways that, um, they're they're non-repetitive, you know. It it is something that is unique and different every time, as you alluded to from the beginning. Yeah, I, I, I just am fascinated by how he designed it. So you have some balance, but you also allow for entropy. You allow for yeah. that. Here's how I created this. Now let's let the forces that are maybe invisible around us, but still felt, act out on this piece. Yeah, and and that's the thing that that you know his work it's sort of deceptively simple. I think you know we we always look at like the first mobiles we we see are like suspended above a crib and it feels like it is a child's toy, um, and and he's elevating that in a in a totally different way. Um, I think maybe this would be a good time for us to shift towards just like let's look critically at streetcar. Uh, that streetcar from 1951. It's one of his mobiles um, at the Art Institute of Chicago. And, you know, do you want to start with, like, what do you see in here? Well, What's jumping out to you? The, for me, it's the, I see a lot of, like, this organic elegance. Like, I feel like it's almost like a skeleton or a nervous system to something. And it, it, everything is kind of like a neuroreceptors to it when you get these little circles that are there. But I love how everything just kind of, nothing is really straight and nothing is really jagged. It's, there are a lot of curves to it, which has got to be hard to create in terms of balance. We have a few pieces that are set up straight, but for the most part, especially towards where it's hanging from, you have this just kind of gentleness to it. Um, and I think that kind of, for me, it, it, it emotes, I get this emotional response to it where it's like, Oh, it's it's kind of smooth. It's flowing. It makes me feel good to look at this piece. It's not hypnotic or mesmerizing, but it just kind of sets me into like a moment where I can step back and really truly start to appreciate what's going on. And you have all these little pieces that are kind of moving, not fast, not like bright, shiny, but just kind of like cruising along in life. A lot like we think we've discovered that Calder did. He's just kind of like, yeah, here I am, just hanging out, letting the breeze take me where I need to go. Um, you know... I can't remember the actual dimensions of this. I, in my mind, as I've seen it over the years, and of course this is a Mandela effect, I, I, I think it's huge, but it's probably not as big as I think it is. Do you, do you have any idea where the dimensions are on it? Um, let me look up the exact dimensions because my estimate is, I want to say it's like four feet, but um, let me see. 
Okay, uh, the dimensions are 42 by 116 inches. Well, so, so that's, that's not, you know, that's not over far t- off. You know, that's 10 feet long. So, okay, 10 feet so that, by 4 feet. Yeah. So that, that does give it a sense of a little bit more than I was saying. And, and when you see things hanging, it kind of gives it that sense of this is big. It's not something that just like kind of slapped together. The, the other piece besides that organic and that flowingness to it is the um, balance to it. They, it just, you see it and you don't feel like, it looks like it should crash and like bang into each other and do all these things, but it doesn't. It's just kind of simply there. And I love that about it because it, it's got motion, but it also has this like stillness to it that kind of, like I said before, kind of just puts me into the moment and it calms me down. Yeah. And I, I think one of the things that, that I'm noticing is, you know, you talked about how it seems like it should almost like crash into each other and, and, and everything like that. But you know, these, these wires that everything is suspended from, they're very thin, delicate wires, like delicate looking wires. The, the shapes almost seem like they're just floating in air. Like, you know, from a distance or if you squint, the, the wires that form the structure and hold it all together just start to disappear. Right. You know, it almost becomes these free floating sort of circles or not quite circles, but these organic shapes. Um, I also like, you talked about how soothing it is and how calming it is. And I think that's not an accident. I think that's, you know, the organic shapes and the curving lines, you know, the, the gentle curves and smooth organic shapes, they do tend to traditionally go along with a calm and soothing, um, soothing, mood or tone the fact that it's it's all powered by those air currents so it's like it's moving in a gentle breeze at a slow pace you know it's not um it's not powered by a motor that's going to have it just flying around the room at breakneck speed it's this slow calm meandering of these you know organic shapes floating above us um and and it's all in this unified color scheme. You know what I mean? It's not bright or loud. Right. And so then I'm trying to figure out, like, where does streetcar come from? And obviously you spent some time uh, all over the country when, when these streetcars were pretty prevalent as, in terms of transportation. So, I'm you know, is it because it's close to that same shape of one? Is it the motions of those, those circles? Are those, like, pedestrians or, or uh, commuters getting on and off? And it just kind of shows how, like, a streetcar is always changing. Like, you never had the same people on the same... Uh, route at the same time like is that where it comes from i don't i don't know if we have any reasons for why it was named that other than he, he liked it but i i try to find some reasoning to, like my own interpretations of like oh i guess i could see like the dots are kind of spread out like either someone's getting on or getting off but it's always in motion especially like if you think about like the streetcars of like those classic in your mind's eye of like coming through in san francisco uh, um where you have like, okay, it's time for you to get on. It's time for me to get off before there was like, okay, now you got to swipe your pass or do all those other things. It was those open air types of things. And so I'm wondering if like that was where his inspiration came from for it. Do we have any idea? Uh, well, like before I cheat and go look it up, <laughs> I'm just going to say like, 
the the connections that I draw to like between this and streetcar, like it it obviously has no real resemblance to right. a streetcar in terms of its physical appearance, but in terms of the materials, like it looks like it's like like a sheet metal type thing. It has that like industrial material kind of feel to it. Okay, and my connection to streetcar, I think of it almost like. Um, sort of the rhythms of movements, whether it could be like the rhythms of pistons firing or it could be like the rhythms of traffic movement. You know, the way that like you say, they're all moving together, but they're not bumping into each other. It's this coordinated dance of like traffic. You know oh, what I'm like saying? That, the way yeah. that, like that's how I see it is it, it sort of takes like this industrial mechanization and, and the world that like, when I think of the Industrial Revolution, I always think of, like, you know, steamy factories that seem, you know, like uh, the, the books that we read about, you know, problems in in factories and everything that went wrong in the early days. Oh, before so you're saying we're going to do Lewis Hines next? We'll do some photography? Um, That'd be great. Yeah. But, but, but like, what, what I see with Streetcar is it's, it's sort of the the more hopeful vision of that mechanism, so, you know, the um, industrial revolution. Yeah. Almost a quiet strength to it. Yeah. And, and it's like, it's the, the ambition of those things. Oh. It's why we have the, the, you know, the assembly line. It's, right. This is, the assembly this line's is the product, not there because it's the a vision. fun place to work. It's, you know, it's because <laughs> we, we, we want it to be because it, it serves a higher purpose. And it's, we're seeing those elements come together in a beautiful way. And that's kind of what I was going to jump off with you from that, that beautiful way. So it could be an admiration for this um, evolution of vehicles, or it could be an evolution. Like, this is where we've gotten. Look at how gorgeous this is. You know, you think about maybe this mechanical engineering background, and you say, and you take it and you merge it with art, and you say, I love how mechanics and engineering work together to create these automotive, these industrial pieces, but there's also like a quiet strength that says, I'm just, this machine is just doing its job. It's kind of humming along quietly, even though they're not super quiet, but they're that quiet strength, that backbone to it, um, that kind of built these cities and allowed people to really move around as much as they needed to. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's not muscle car. It's not the brute strength of mm -hmm. the, the, the motor. It's it's appreciating the elegance of, you know, figures in motion and, you know, an elegant design, which I think, you know, an artist slash engineer, that's probably how he thought about these things, you know, as like an elegant design. I wholeheartedly agree it. there. I think that's a excellent way to put it. And I have even more appreciation for the piece now that I'm staring at it. Um, and so... I'm wrapping it up. I want just a three-point rating scale. And Where should this hang? The Louvre? Is this something to look at? The lab. the lab? Is this something to learn from? Or the Louvre? British for the bathroom. Yeah. There's the a Louvre. joke in there somewhere. Oh, that's terrible. I certainly don't think it's the last one. That understanding of this, how this artwork comes about, I think is, is important. Um, I think that Calder did things that we didn't think about before, and he found um, ways to 
show what he sees the world as. Instead of doing these repetitive motions where he started, he said, I want the world to feel a little bit more free. I want my sculpture, my creations to kind of move with the world. But I also want to tie it back to this, what's going on in our world, this industrial piece, this automotive piece, whatever you want to call it. I, I, I think whenever we start talking about pieces that are new, um, at least for that time period, I think it's really important to 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 show that to keep them in the forefront because even if we don't see it now, maybe you know we could make something like this and hang it in a hotel room um, and just call it art like you do with all those paintings that you see all the time. But to understand its historical significance is where I take a step back and go, okay. Plus, I think the emotions that it evokes if you stop and still yourself a little bit that mindful moment this is a more powerful piece that we think about all those different types of things that kind of still us. You think about like wind chimes, you think about um, all those other hanging pieces that we see. Why do we do all those things? Well, because they put us into the present. And when you look at something like Calder, I think it forces us to be here now and mindful. And so I personally look at it and I go, this is really important. So you see that as a museum piece. Like that is something to see, to appreciate, to be mindful, to take in. I see this piece specifically because it was yeah. the forefront of it. If I go and make a mobile that looks a lot like it and I hang in my room, I'm probably not going to be like, oh, this is so pretty. But there's a reason that kids have mobiles hanging in their cribs. It's because it calms them. It stills them. It forces yeah. them to, to get all the other distractions away. And I think that Calder was kind of onto something with that. Oh, certainly. Certainly. Um, I, I actually have a very similar rationale. Oh. But How I are we going to fight then? Well... For me, I, I I would put this in the lab, just because um, if I'm if I'm being a hundred percent honest, I don't like it. I don't Whoa. like the look of it. Um, like to me, it feels like it feels like a little bit of Moreau. It feel feels like a little like uh, it feels like other artists from that time. And I just I I like the ideas behind it. I love kinetic moving elements. I love things that are interactive, that are breaking down the barrier between the artist and the audience. Um, I, I do agree that there is something that is soothing about this piece to a lot of people. But I think for me, as, as I look at this, I, I personally am not going to linger on it. And I've seen a lot of people sort of pass by it. And I think there are really interesting ideas at play here. But I feel like the aesthetics just don't come together fully for me. When I look at this, it he was actually influenced by Mondrian. He, he said like he was shocked by into like embracing abstract art after visiting Mondrian's studio. And Mondrian was the dude famous for the squares and rectangles, primary colors, right. like breaking it down to the simplest elements. And I look at this and I, I see a little bit of that influence of like you're, you're breaking it down, you're distilling it down to these fundamental elements, simple organic shapes and wires that almost disappear um, in to, to leave these floating forms. And there's something interesting about that idea. There's just something that I feel lacking in this. To me, visually, it's not a, as pleasant of an experience as it is intellectually. And that's, that's where, to me, it seems like this is one for the lab, not the Louvre. 
Thank you very much for taking the time to join me. My pleasure, Mr. Wood. It's always great to be here talking and learning from you about art and, you know, pushing my own narratives. This concludes this week's episode of Who Arted? If you found this tolerable, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You can find images of the work being discussed this week and every week in the show notes on Twitter at WoodArtEd and on the website whoartedpodcast.com. Podcast done.